Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is um, the 14th ep it's, uh, recording of a series of videos uh, talking about the introduction to Lutheranism, the basic catechetical instruction of what we as Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. The subject matter of today is confession. Uh, much like baptism, it is a source of debate, a source of division between different church bodies. But as Lutherans, we very strongly hold to a practice of confession and absolution. To illustrate this, I am going to begin with a particular, I'm going to read through a particular text. And this is taken from, um, and it's going to be from 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to begin at, begin at verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David set Joab and his sent, sorry, Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. All right, so as I'm reading, I'm going to read as I'm reading through this text, I'm going to kind of walk you through it, bring out some details. And so right away here, we got a little bit of a detail. Spring time, spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Okay, so this is a time that kings go out to battle. David is the king. Where is G where is David? He's remaining in Jerusalem, which means he is not doing what he is supposed to be doing as the king. So this is already we're seeing a problem here. He's got a little bit of a case of laziness. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now I'm going to stop for a moment there. So at the beginning here, so David goes up to the roof and he sees this woman bathing. Now we don't, it's always, oftentimes we assume that the woman was on a rooftop herself, but we don't know that for certain. Uh, she might might have been, she might not have been. We know he was on a roof, and so he had to have been on an elevated point where he could look down, which makes sense because he's in the palace, so he probably would be in a higher point than others. So he looked down, and he saw this woman bathing. Now, you know, walking in on something that you're not supposed to walk in on, that's not a sin. There's nothing wrong. That, ha that stuff might happen. So what he should have done is like, whoa, 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 whoa turned right back around, but what he did is he continued looking. Now, from some research I've done in the past, I'd have to, I'd have to do some, there's others that might know more than me and be able to verify this. Um, but there is normal, so what the woman is doing, she is doing a ceremonial washing, a cleansing, because this is their time, of pure, the time of her period. And so there was a purifying that was supposed to be done. And by the way, this is also letting you know that she's at that time where she could easily get pregnant. This is actually a detail that the writer's letting you know. They they understand the, they understand the birds and the bees, okay? Um, 
And so David, so it's possible. So it's nor, but it was so normally she this bathing this bathing house where she would have been at would have had a covering that would have been um, made it difficult for David to see. So the question may be is why wasn't that covering there? Why was it made possible for him to view her while she's bathing? And so it might possibly be that Bathsheba wanted him to look. So Anyway, so the woman conceived and she said and told David, I am pregnant. There are some who have argued that David raped Bathsheba. Um, part of this is because he is the man of higher power. But we have no indication that there was any resistance on the part of Bathsheba. We see no indicator of that, that she resisted. And if... The, the issue of the covering is true. That means she was actually inviting it. Um, so there is a possibility she was indeed doing that. And so it may have been more mutual than we realize, that both of them wanted it. Um, either way, this is an infidelity. This is a sinful, this is a sin of adultery. Um, it began with lust. Um, if you read Jesus, if you listen to what Jesus says, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about this in the commandments, to look lustfully upon another um, is to commit adultery with them in your heart. So David is already committing adultery in his heart, and he, he took it a step forward. He invited her over so he could fully, physically commit adultery with her. The consequence is she is pregnant, which is what would happen around the time of a woman's period. If you sleep with her, very good chance she's going to get pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the Servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went to lie down on his couch with his servant, with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. So you see, there's two. David makes two attempts to get Uriah to go sleep with his wife Bathsheba. He invites him home. He gets him drunk. He does these things, and it doesn't work. And the idea is you think, well, hopefully people will think that Uriah is the father. 
And as you know, as I noted, it is not working. And it's very interesting, as notable as that Uriah, the reason why Uriah is not going in um, to be with his wife is because he is an honorable soldier. He is honoring to the king and honoring to the kingdom of Israel. In fact, we're seeing in this that Uriah has more honor than David does at this moment. All right? So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger, king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who called, killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also is dead also. So what you hear, so David, in order to cover up his sin, has now murdered Hitt, Uriah the Hittite. And in order to have him killed, he also allowed for others to be killed. He allowed some of his best soldiers to die in order to cover his sin. This is just, David's sin is getting really deep. So we've got laziness. We've got um, lust. We have lust. We have actual committing of adultery. We have lying and deceit. And now we have murder. All right? And you probably say even manslaughter for killing the others, the others that were um, victims of his him attempting to hide what he did. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, "The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall." Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you, shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And notice, he calls Uriah your servant. Uriah is the servant of David, and yet David had him murdered. David had a good man, I mean, relatively good man, murdered to cover his wretchedness and his sin. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, which, by the way, this is the... In Israel, there was a period of mourning. It was 30 days. It says that when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. 
and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right, so we're covering that David has done a horrible, wretched sin. And so, and so verse chapter 12, right? This is quite a bit of reading, but this there's a point to this. This relates to the subject of confession. And the Lord sent David, Nathan, to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now it's kind of interesting that Nathan is using the imagery of sheep. Because David was a shepherd, so this would be this 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 would ring very close to his ears. So this is why David reacts. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity." Nathan said to David, "You." Are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And by the way, no, hear that. You are the man. This isn't a, this is not like you're the man, man. This isn't like a uplifting your cool. This is you are the man who deserves to die for this egregious sin. You did worse than taking a lamb. You, you took, took a man's beloved wife, and then you had him murdered. This is exactly what it says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 
and Nathan went in went to his house. So there you have David giving his confession, and I'm going to read this. You got the short version of his confession: "I have sinned against the Lord." There's a longer version. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But here's the de why I read this. David had committed a sin. He had rebelled against God. He actually didn't commit one sin. He committed many sins. And the final sins were the most egregious. And he as he said it from his own lips, David understood it, that he deserved death. So when he had committed his sin, God sent a man, an individual, specific person, and this a man to come to David and convict him of his sin. And that's exactly what Nathan did. He used the story and then he said, you are the man to convict David of his sin. And when David confessed his sin, what did he, God use Nathan, this man Nathan, to tell David that his sin would be put away? In other words, his sin is forgiven, that he would not die an eternal death on account of it. See, similarly in our time, in, in our law, in the new, this is the old covenant. God did not stop sending men, individuals, to come to you to declare your sins forgiven. This is a promise that still holds true in the New Testament church. So in the case of David, the gift to David was Nathan. Nathan was the one that was sent to, tell, to convict him of his sin and pronounce on him forgiveness. In the New Covenant... It is the pastor that does this. So before I get to the scripture of the New Testament that really speaks to this, I'm going to read from Luther's small catechism. I'm going to read what it says regarding confession. So it says, so it starts, what is confession? So this is the fifth chief part. Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So there you go. The pastor is the one publicly called with the and given the task of being the one to hear your sins confessed and to pronounce to you forgiveness of sins. So in other words... So for our congregation, St. Paul Luther Church here at Ida Grove, myself or Pastor Salcedo, we are the ones that are called to hear your sins confessed, hear our, the sins of our members confessed, and we are the ones called publicly to declare forgiveness. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. So I think that's very helpful. So which are these? 
Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? So, and then in there here is a short form of confession. I'm going to come back to that, all right? So, the pastor is given the authority to forgive sins. And so where does he get this authority? It comes, so it says, it continues into here, what is what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is the special that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? This is what is what the Saint, Saint John the Evangelist writes in chapter two in chapter twenty. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven." John twenty verse twenty two to twenty three. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when call, the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins when to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. So I'm going to read again that So that's the Office of the Keys, Confession and absolution. That's the chief, fifth article, the fifth chief part of the catechism. So God calls pastors for the purpose of administering His sacraments publicly in, in declaration of forgiveness of sins publicly. Um, in the in the, the Paul's letter, first letter to the church in Corinth, he refers to the pastors as the stewards. Of the mysteries, and I'm actually going to quickly look up that passage so that way I can give you the exact passage. So this would be First Corinthians chapter four. So this is First Corinthians four, verse one through seven. This is this whole little section is a good time to talk about confession, a time to talk about the role of pastors, such as myself. So it, I I wasn't even thinking about it. I was going to talk about this. This would be a good di day for me to be wearing my clerical collar, but I'm not. I'm wearing more casual. Um, but this is what it says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul's talking about apostles, pastors, actually, in this case. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring the, to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each will receive his commendation from God. 
I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who he, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So I read that because this is so. This is Paul in the church in the letter to the first first letter to the Corinthians. Paul deals with quite a few issues, and one of the things he talks about is his relationship to the church at Corinth. He talks about the relationship to pastors, apostles, those who are, as he said, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And the mysteries of God is quite often a way to speak of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the proclamation of the word. There are people that are set apart with the purpose of publicly um, carrying out God's, administering those sacraments and proclaiming the word. And so the question sometimes comes is, where does the pastor get authority to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins, which ironically, this is exactly what the um, the people were saying when Jesus um, had forgiven the paralytic. Now, Jesus was indeed God, but he, Jesus, in response, it says authority has been given to man. So in other words, God, Jesus would indeed give authority to men, to human beings, men, to forgive sins publicly. And so the primary verse that we go to in this regard, it, and you heard it right there in the, um, the scriptures in the, or from the catechism, it comes from John chapter 20, verse 19, beginning at verse 19. So this is right after Jesus has, has risen from the dead. Um, the women have seen that the tomb was empty and, and the men and Mary in particular had seen the risen Jesus and um, embraced him. So verse 19, it says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right, so Jesus right there is giving the command, giving the permission, giving the authority. So he says, peace be with you. He begins with peace be with you. So Jesus shows up in this upper room. They are, um, he shows up in the midst of them. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, if you imagine when this happened, this would have been startling. I mean, the last time they know of Jesus, he was dead. He was in a tomb. As far as he was concerned, he is dead. They didn't believe the women. So they're standing there in the midst of a room with the doors locked. And right in front of them, poof, Jesus appears. He didn't come through the door. He didn't bang it down. He just showed up in the midst of them. So naturally, they're thinking they're looking right at a ghost. They're terrified. They're afraid. And so Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, let's calm down, guys. It's me. But here's... But, 
And then he, he again, he says, but he says it a second time. And the reason he needs to say this is peace be with you is not just kind of calm down, but it's also a word of forgiveness. And this is the primary use of it here. Jesus is forgiving them. You think, before? Well, they didn't believe the women. Jesus told them over and over again that he was going to be crucified and he was going to, he was going to die, be buried, and on the third day rise from the dead. When he was arrested, they abandoned him. They were his disciples. The word disciple meant, means follower. So they're supposed to follow him, but they did exactly the opposite. They fled from him. So they failed it in their role as, sinner, as disciples. Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was. And now, and then when he, risen, he had risen from the dead, they saw the tomb empty. They didn't believe it. Even after they had seen, even after the women had told them that they had seen him risen from the dead, they still didn't believe. And so, given their record as of late, their sinfulness, their sinfulness of disbelief, Jesus tells them, "Peace be with you." He's telling them, "Your sins are forgiven." And in fact, the past in the in our divine service, so right before communion. Um, I will say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, to which the congregation says, Amen. And a lot of times I'll be holding the bread, I'll be holding the wine up in front. And the reason I do that is to say, in this bread, in this wine, which is the, the body and blood of Jesus, which we're going to talk about in the next video, is the peace of the Lord. This is the peace of the Lord is being delivered to you in this sacrament. So, and when I say the peace of the Lord, I am sharing with you the same peace <coughs> that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room. And, and the reason we're doing that is because Jesus told them to. Right here, he says, As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. So in other words, he is sending them out to declare the same peace unto others. The peace of the Lord that they just heard, the peace of Je Jesus Christ the Lord, was declared to Jesus Christ the Lord, declared his peace to them twice, and he would do it again a little um, a little bit in, when he shows up a week later. And it's also recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He's telling them to go forth and declare that same peace of the of him, the Lord, to others. And that's what the Pat myself or any pastors doing when we say this during the liturgy. We are doing what Jesus told us to do. We are declaring the peace of the Lord unto you. We're declaring that forgiveness. And, and here he gives authority to declare publicly, to declare forgiveness. And when we forgive sins, when we say your sins are forgiven, they are. you could take it to the bank. They are forgiven, just as Jesus said. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And with, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Um, the reason why somebody would have forgiveness withheld is because they are unrepentant. They have committed a sin, but they have no, they show no repentance, and therefore the pastor has the authority to withhold it. And that is also where the pastor has the authority to withhold the, the mysteries. And I'll talk about that more, not in the next video, but the video after that, when we talk about 
uh, communion fellowship. But God, Jesus himself, is the one that gives man the authority to do these things. Now, the argument often sometimes will go is that Jesus is giving this promise only um, to the original 12, the 11 apostles who he's talking to. It would be 11 because Judas had committed, had killed himself by this time. So, and so people say it's just to those 11. Well, if that's the case, it's kind of a cruel thing for John to write because John is writing this in probably around 70 AD. And this would be words of, should be as sound as words of encouragement to let people know, hey, there are people that could come to you and declare, tell you that your sins are forgiven. And when they tell you it, your sins really are forgiven. It's pretty cool, huh? And so you're reading that. Wow, we, can we go find these people? And if John were responding, you'd be like, well, here's the deal. Ten of those guys are already dead. All right? So you can't really go talk to them. And me, who's writing this to you and letting you know that, you know, people, if I forgive the sins of you, they're forgiven. I'm in prison. So if you could come to the prison island of Patmos, I would love to forgive you. Doesn't sound like much of a deal. Because he's telling you you got this wonderful gift that God has provided for you and you can't receive it. It doesn't make sense it's given to just some, just the 11. Rather, it makes more sense that this was given to all, actually not just to all pastors, actually it's given to the entire church. The pastor is the one that does it for, publicly for the sake of order, so good order. So actually, even you, you, a Christian, can declare to somebody, say to somebody, hey, so somebody's saying, you know, I, I can't believe I did this thing. I can't believe, I can't believe how I talked to, talked to my brother or talked to my sister or how I talked to my parents, you know, things like that. You, you may be really struggling with the sin that you've done. And any Christian can say to you, listen, I declare to you this day that your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus dying on the cross. You could do that. Any Christian could do that. The pastor is the one that's charged to do this publicly. And the reason we have someone charged to do this is for the sake of good order. And it's also for the sake of comfort and conscience. See, you could go tell that to another person, so a random Christian. But they're not – what makes a pastor different from your average church member is that a pastor is under vows – he has vowed and promised that any sins you confess to him, he will not divulge it. I have promised that even, I mean, a, you could come to me and confess that you murdered someone. And then the police could come and say, hey, did such and such murder this person? I would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I mean, if I heard about it in the news, then I could say it. But if I heard it in, in the right of confession, I don't have to I I would not tell anybody. And and by the way, fortunately in the United States of America, pastors are protected by this by the constitution. The Supreme Court has ruled that we are protected in this regard. And so this is <clears throat> so this is why you have a pastor that they are there 
to tell them they are protected by their vows. A lay person does not have any such vow. And so it might be you tell a Christian that may not be very good at keeping secrets. They could be a person that they hear that it might end up on Facebook or Twitter the next day, and everybody's going to know about it. You don't want a person like that. You want someone you know will not tell anybody at any point, at any time. They will take what you said to the grave. And that is what the, the vow the pastor has. And it's also the reason the pastor, the pastor does it publicly um, for the sake of good order. It would be chaotic if you had multiple people doing it all at the same time. Um, so this is specifically when we're dealing with confession and absolution. The reason why ideally you have a pastor doing baptism is because the pastor is the one who is going to lead the charge and the spiritual formation of that individual who is baptized. That's why ideally you have a pastor do the baptism. If there's an emergency situation, you can have a layperson. The one, ex the Lord's Supper, however, is always administered by a pastor, a called ordained minister. And so I'm going to pull up the Book of Concord on this. So this is, I've talked about this in one of the first videos that Lutherans, as Lutherans, we confess to the documents contained in this within this book. So I'm going to open up to the Augsburg Confession. This isn't the first time I'm going to read from this. I'm actually going to read a couple quotes from this. Uh, let's see. So Article, Chapter, Article, Okay, so this is Article 13. Yeah, or Article 14, sorry. Concerning church government, it is taught that no one should publicly teach, preach, or administer the sacraments without a proper call. That is... That is um, what we practice as Lutherans, that the only person that should be administering the sacraments or publicly preaching and teaching is a pastor. And this is partially is for the sake of good order. That's the number one reason. And secondly, it's because we know that they've been rightly trained. We spent, as a pastor, I have gone through eight years of college. Um, I went to undergrads and I went to seminary. So I have a master's degree in theology. Um, there are pastors that are much more educated. The pastor is supposed to be amongst the best, better educated individuals of any community. And they're supposed to know the Greek. They're supposed to know the Hebrew. They're supposed to know the history of the, ch of the church. They're supposed to be able to understand how to interpret scripture. They're supposed to know what is going on in the Lord's Supper and be able to explain it to people. Um, they're supposed to be able to recognize false teaching. All right, so this is all part of it. So and people sometimes say, well, the, well, the disciples never went to seminary. And I'm like, yeah, they did. They just didn't call it seminary. They were they walked around with Jesus for, for a minimum of three years. That's the best seminary education that anyone has ever had. They even had kind of a vicarage in there. But nonetheless, the right there in there is the command that the sacraments should only ever be administered by a called and ordained 
minister. All right. Um, and this includes private communion, things like that. Some people argue, well, what about an emergency case, such as in the case of baptism? The problem with this is that there is no such thing as an emergency as an emergency Lord's Supper. You will not go to hell because you do not receive the Lord's Supper on a given Sunday. Uh, reception of the Lord's Supper is important. Um, complete refusal to receive it, yeah, that would be that could condemn you, but that's not going to amount to um, a case of an emergency because you have had that kind of refusal. It usually happens through the course of months and months and years and years, right? Um, and that's not an emergency. That's ongoing neglect. So there's no such thing as an emergency in the Lord's Supper. And so the only person that should ever be administering it is a pastor. Um, talking about confession, one of the things we get this idea is that confession is only to be done publicly. In modern church, in, in the modern church, most people do confession only during the divine service. And and so that would be at the very beginning of a Sunday morning service. And they think that's the only place and the only time that a person can do confession. They don't – and it's been rejected. Many people reject the practice of private absolution. So you come in on Saturday or whatever day. You come in. You visit with the pastor. You confess your sins unto him, and he pronounce absol pronounces absolution unto you. And many people say, well, that's a Catholic thing. Lutherans don't do that. And that's not true. Lutherans very, very much affirm to it. And in fact, those words that I was just reading um, from the small catechism was written with the assumption that it would be done privately, not publicly. In fact, what I did not read was right in the middle there was a short form of confession that is written for private confession. So Luther, in his small catechism, wrote an order of private confession and absolution. And why? Because we were expected to do it. And this is even what, again, our Augsburg Confession, this is what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. In any Lutheran church, if you were to look at their um, their uh, constitution, you will see that they abide by these documents. So Article 11 of the Augsburg Confession, it says, concerning confession, they, the Lutheran, the, the Reformers, the people of the Reformation, whatever you want to say it, they teach that private absolution should be retained in the churches, although an enumeration of all false confession is not necessary, for this is impossible according to the psalm but who can detect their errors? So again, and then Article 12 concerning repentance. Concerning repentance, they teach that those who have fallen after baptism can receive forgiveness of sins whenever they are brought to repentance, and that the church should impart absolution to those who return to repentance. Now, properly speaking, repentance consists of two parts. And this is really good because I talked about that the person whose forgiveness should be withheld is someone who is unrepentant. So the question is, what is repentance? So right here, repentance consists of two parts. One is contrition or the terrors that strike the conscience. 
when sin is recognized. So first is you recognize your sin. You're, you're, you feel that guilt, terror of the guilt of, the, of what befalls you, or what you deserve on account of it. The other is faith, which is brought to life by the gospel or absolution. This faith believes that sins are forgiven on account of Christ, consoles the conscience, and liberates it from terrors. Thereupon, good works, which are the fruit of repentance, should follow. So good works should follow repentance, and it's a fruit of repentance, byproduct of it. But ultimately, faith, repentance is contrition, guilt over your sin, and faith that God, Christ, will forgive you. And, and I'm going to read, so going back to that example of David, this is the best biblical example we have of a conf an order of confession. This is taken from Psalm 51. And this is exact. This is what David wrote, most likely wrote, after he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there you go. That is, if you read that, that is in you. You, you can in it, you can hear faith, you hear the guilt. You hear the guilt of what he did. Against you, you only have I sinned. He speaks not only of the sin of his deeds. Um, verse 5 in particular highlights that he was born in sin. 
He was conceived in sin. So he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that his mother's conception was a sin, but rather, because as far as we know, it was a, she was a faithful woman. So the, the sin was not the conception. The sin, rather, he was a sinner from conception. And so he was, and it makes sense based on the first half of the verse, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And this is Hebrew poetry where it parallels itself. I brought forth iniquity and could sin. It's, it's reflecting one another. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. And so he's, he's acknowledging his sin from birth and what he has done and how he has sinned. And so he, but he's also, he's expressing contrition. He's expressing regret. He's expressing guilt. But he's expressing also faith. Faith that he'll be forgiven. Faith that God will have mercy. All right, so this is a very good example of um, words of confession. This is what we have in this is what we have in the Catechism. This is Luther's suggested order of confession. He says, "Dear confessor," so this is notice this is intended to be written to specifically to the pastor. This is individual confession. He says, "Dear confessor." I ask you, please, to hear my confession and to pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill God's will. I, a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. In particular, I confess before you that as a servant, maid, etc., I, sad to say, serve my master unfaithfully. For in this and that I have done, not done what I was told to do. I have made him angry and caused him to curse. I have been negligent and allowed damage to be done. I have also been offensive in words and deeds. I have quarreled with my peers. I have grumbled about the lady of the house and cursed her. I am sorry for all of this, and I ask for grace. I want to do better. A master or the lady of the house may say, In particular, I confess before you that I have not faithfully guided my children, servants, and wife to the glory of God. I have cursed. I have set a bad example by indecent words and deeds. I have hurt my neighbor and spoken evil of him. I have overcharged, sold inferior merchandise, and given less than I was paid for. So this is the so that's a very simple confession, and gives you an idea of what should be said, an idea of what is said, um, or. More similarly, I could use the confession that we have in our within our hymnal. You know, let me pull that one up. This is what we usually use in the divine service. Uh, so I'm on page 167 because that was <clears throat> the first one that I opened up to. It says, Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. So this is us saying very similar to what David said in Psalm 51, verse 5. So we're born. We are by nature sinful and clean. This is speaking to original sin. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So what we have done, thought. So remember, sins are not just in what thought. No, it starts with thoughts because that's the most common sin. That's the most abundant one. Our sins in what we think, in what we say, and in what we do. Or text tweet, whatever, think maybe we need to start putting something in there. 
thought, word, deed, and tweet, or something like that. But what we have done, so we always tend to focus on the things we did, but we also sin when we don't do the things we should. So we see someone being um, bullied or whatever, being uh, somebody being cruel to another, and we don't stand up for them. Um, we see someone, or maybe there's something we're supposed to be doing and we don't do it. Whatever it may be, if we neglect to do it. So we're confessing the things we've done and we've left undone. So this premise, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So that's echoing the two greatest commandments. When Jesus was asked what are the two greatest commandments are, he said the first is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your, and with all your strength. So there we are confessing. We have not loved God with all our whole heart. And the, sec the second commandment, the second greatest commandment is love the neighbor, love, love your neighbor as yourself. And here, again, we are confessing we have failed in that regard. We justly deserve your present eternal punishment. We recognize that we deserve punishment in this life. That was we deserve death. We deserve any physical, physical turmoil that comes our way as a consequence of our sin. But we also deserve hell. We deserve condemnation. We deserve damnation, eternal death. And so then here comes, so this is all, that's the contrition. And so here comes faith. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So that is faith. That is a very good model of repentance and confession. And the pastor is a called and ordained servant of the Lord in the stead and by the command of your of, of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ declares to you that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. He uses the words of your baptism. So saying it's, it's actually almost like an, so it's an extension of your baptism. On account of Jesus' death on the cross, on account of the means of grace, you are forgiven when the pastor says those words on to you. And they are as true as if God himself spoke them to you. And so just as it was true when Nathan spoke to David, just as it would be true for the apostles, so it is when the pastor or any Christian says this to you. But again, the pastor does this publicly for the sake of good order. So the one last thing I want to bring up, and this is this is not really dealing with confession or absolution, but it just is dealing with the consequences of sin. When I read that thing from First Samuel, from Second Samuel, you will notice that the child that Bathsheba became pregnant with, the the pregnancy that David was trying to hide. And by the way, the reason David was hiding it was not because he felt guilty; he was hiding it because the punishment for death was he would have been punishment for what he had done is he would have been stoned to death. Um. So he would have been put to death for what he had done. So that's why he's trying to hide it. He's trying to cover his own behind. But you see the consequence of their sin was that that child died. And see, this is something you have to remember. You may, you may, become, you may be forgiven by God. And that means that your eternity is the life, life of the world to come, the resurrection of the body heaven and eventually the resurrection of the body that is that is still in store for you because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross because of the forgiveness of sins 
But that does not mean you're freed of earthly consequences. If you commit, if you committed, if you're married and you cheat on your wife or husband, you still may find yourself divorced. You're dating somebody, you cheat on your boyfriend or girlfriend. You you might find your relationship may still come to an end. And you'll find a very soured relationship between all of people involved. If you get pulled over for speeding and the police officer comes to the door, and yes, speeding is a sin. Why? Because you're commanded to obey the government. Read read Romans chapter 13. I've read that back when we talked about the fourth commandment. Speeding is a sin because it's rebellion against God, God's, God's servant, the government. And so, the, so the officer comes up to the door and says, hey, I've clocked you at 65 and a 55. And you're going to say, well, you know, I'm forgiven of my sins, so I'm okay. And the past, the, the officer's like, well, that's great. I, he, I'm, I'm a Christian too. Maybe you might say that. But you still get a ticket. Because there's a, you may be forgiven by God, but there are still earthly consequences to your sin. And what happened to that child was the earthly consequences of David and Bathsheba's sin. That's the, see Bathsheba. They both sinned. People want to take Bathsheba off the hook and say she was raped. No, they both sinned. All right, no one was innocent except for Uriah was the innocent victim, and honestly, the child was innocent. I mean, beyond sins, innocent in regards to what happened. So forgiveness does not, like I said, does not free you from the consequences of sin on this earth, but it does free you from the eternal consequence of sin. And so when you confess it unto the pastor and you hear you are forgiven, it is true as if Jesus himself is saying it right to you. Understand the pastor is but an instrument by which your God speaks to you. Just as Nathan was but an instrument by which Yahweh spoke to David. So, the next video I'm going to we're not the next. You think I'm going to go into? I was going to go into the Lord's Supper in the next video, and I is I now at 58 minutes. I I'm going to keep this one under an hour. I think I'm going to talk about women's ordination, women pastors. We're going to talk about that in the next video. Um, I was going to talk about that in this video, but it's a whole nother subject. And it's a, one that gets talked about a lot, a lot of questions about it. But we're going to talk about it. I want to have an entire video dedicated to it. And so I'm going to leave it this here, and I'll come back to you with that in the next video. So I pray this continues to be a blessing to you and continues to be informative. Um, God bless. See you in the next video.